Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon from Hope Church Toronto North. It is our prayer that through this message, you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of God and grow in your love for God and love for others. It is God's desire for us to be members of and regularly participate in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you are not attending a local church right now, we encourage you to take that step. If you do live in the North York area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to visit us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings to discern if this is the church God is leading you to. Romans 15.5 says, Whatever was written in former days, sorry, 15.4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. And so when you read scripture, what is going on is God is teaching you biblical history to help you live your part in church history. Just think about that. You're reading what happened in the past. You're being instructed because God is trying to help you live now and to live well now. And God is doing that at the end of Nehemiah. And our question today that we're trying to answer is, how does the end of Nehemiah help us now? Because I don't know about you, but when I read my Bible, I want help now. So how does the end of Nehemiah help us now? It helps us by reminding us that gospel ministers need support that gospel ministers need support. Look at chapter 12, verse 44. It says, on the day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithe to gather into them the portion required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests, the Levites, who ministered, and they performed a service of their God and a service of purification as did the singers, the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and of, and of and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portion for the singers, the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which for, was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron." In verse 44, it says, the tithe were gathered for the priests and the Levites. In verse 47, it says, Israel gave the daily portion for the singers and the gatekeepers. What the Bible is telling you is that the gospel ministers had food and funds because the people gave. They gave so that the minister's needs were met. And God expects us to do the same. No lie, when I started and thought about Nehemiah, I didn't think I was going to talk about giving this much. But you got to say and do where God puts you. And God expects us to do the same. 1 Corinthians 9, 14 says, those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. 1 Timothy 5, 18 says, a laborer deserves his wages. And I want you to know that the priests and the Levites were laboring. Verse 44, it says they ministered. Verse 45, it says they performed the, the service of their God. They're not getting paid for nothing. 
And God, I say, God expects that those who are ministering the gospel, whether it's inside the local church or spreading it around, that you're not supposed to get your living for doing nothing. That actually, that if you're a minister of the gospel, you're supposed to work harder than the people you're probably trying to serve. Did you hear what I, <laughs> come on, I'm, I'm putting in work up here. I got a good sleep last night and you guys aren't helping me. You're supposed to labor in the work. See, the ministry is not a place to hide from hard work. And there are some people that you talk to them, they're like, oh, I feel called to this. And you're like, oh, really? And really, when you listen to them, they're like, I just want to hang out in coffee shops and talk to people. You're like, what? It's labor. That's what God expects. Sure, get together with somebody in a coffee shop, but make sure you're putting in work there. Helping them in the faith, whatever it is, God expects us to work hard. And I want you to notice that the ministry team in Jerusalem was diverse. You catch it? There are priests, there are Levites, there are singers, there are gatekeepers. And the, as I was looking at this, you know what it made me think about? It made me think about our church. The ministry, the ministry team back then made me think of the ministry team here. We've got, we got tons of people working, and it's good, and it's help. there's kids workers. Oh, no lie, I was downstairs for a second. There's babies crying. I'm like, mm, it's tough in there. <laughs> Working, serving, there's singers, there's, there's production team members, there's welcome team, there's deacons, there's elders. And what the Bible is trying to tell you is that serving the people of God and helping the people grow in the faith and helping people come into the faith, that gospel ministry is a team sport. And that it's, it's, if you're expecting it, it all to come from up here, it's, you're going to be disappointed. The work requires a team. And we are to work together in unity. And look at verse 44. It says, Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. What's that telling you? They, they encouraged the people. They, they, there's some people in church, they're like, my job is to make everybody who's ministering miserable. That, they're, like, that's a, that, they're like, that's my spiritual gift. I'm like, it's not in the gift list. I checked. They rejo- what they, that tells you, they, they made sure that the people who were ministering to them, they encouraged them. They expressed their gratitude. They, those people knew that they were loved by the people they were serving. Aren't we supposed to do the same things? I'm telling you, if there's somebody in our church, again, it's not, it's not always just me. There's other people. If somebody in our church does something that blesses you or you appreciate, tell them. Here's why. Because sometimes they're having a real hard time serving you. There's times when I'm at home and I'm like, mm, I'm leaving my house at like 8, 10. But I know that Sabrina or Carla or Shayon, they're here at 7 a.m. Or I talk to, you know, Sam and he's like, you know, Marv, when I'm getting ready to sing, I got to practice all week. He's like, sometimes I even have to watch what I drink. I'm like, what? Like, when I'm getting up to talk, I drink whatever I want. And he's like, oh, yeah, it messes with your voice. I was like, oh, okay. Just these little things that we know nothing, that we don't really recognize. 
that the people who are standing up here, that are here setting things up, turning things off, putting things away, as you go out to lunch, that you know, they're working really hard. And sometimes in the labor, they're like, I'm this close to, to quitting. And you don't know how your one little thank you, your one little expression of gratitude, your one little moment at home of praying for them, you have no idea how that might keep them going in the work. They rejoiced over the people because sometimes ministry and late is hard. And it's not as simple as it looks. And so just do your part. And who can I encourage? Who can I say thank you to? And see how God just might use that. Verse 13, sorry, chapter 13. It says, on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And then it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should enter, ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now to really understand what's going on here, you, gotta, you just got to remember Israel's history. So God rescues them out of, out of Egypt, and he's leading them through the wilderness. And as he's leading them, the Ammonites and the Moabites oppose them. They could help, but they oppose. uh, Numbers 21 says, then Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, saying, let us pass through your land. We will not turn aside into the field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of, of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sion would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Numbers 22, verse 1 to 6 says, Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. Sometimes fear of people actually makes you do terrible things to them rather than kind things to them. Where am I? And Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will, not, will now lick, <laughs> lick all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Balaam saying, behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth and they are dwelling opposite me Come now, curse this people for me, since there are too many for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. This scene, why I'm showing you it, is that it shows you two things about human beings. We sin in two types of ways. There, we commit sins of omission. That is, we don't do the good things we can do. Right? There's a good we can do for someone, and we don't do it. That's a sin of omission. I'm telling you this because it should, you should slow down and try to examine your life and think about this. Is any of these things going on in my life? Then there's the sin of commission. That is where we directly do the things God tells us not to do. Omission and commission. And here's what you got to understand. God judges them both. 
Judgment comes to both of them. All you got to do is look at verse 1. It says, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. They're judged for their sin. Now you read that. Some people read that and they're like, hmm, that just makes God seem kind of petty. You know, like, times pass. Shouldn't we just, you know, let bygones be bygones? Isn't God, like, holding a grudge over time? Isn't that, isn't that kind of a petty thing by God? No, 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 God's not being petty. God is being faithful. I've said this before in a previous message. Here it comes again. God is faithful to judge our sin and forgive our sin. Now, here's where I'm going with this. Just think about Ruth, who is a Moabite. Ruth was a Moabite from these people. But you know what happened in Ruth's life? She came to the faith. She's standing in front of her mother-in-law. She says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And then you know what happened for Ruth? She was welcomed into the assembly of God. She was welcomed into the assembly of God. See, the only people who are excluded from the assembly of God are the people who refuse to accept the forgiveness and mercy and grace that God offers. If you're left out, it's because you're choosing to stay out. If you're left out, it's because you don't actually realize that there is a merciful God who, yes, he is faithful, but if you repent, will forgive. But if you choose not to repent, and somebody needs to hear this today, if you choose not to repent, you will be excluded and left out, but it will be on you, not on God. And so you need to see, again, when, you, when I read the Bible, I'm looking for help now. Here's how it helps the unbeliever now. If you turn and trust and repent, you will be welcomed into the assembly of God. Why? Because God is faithful to forgive when we repent. The Moabites and the Ammonites opposed the people. But look at verse 2. It says, For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Watch it. This should, this should bless your heart. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. Yet our God turned the curse into a a blessing. The end of Nehemiah helps us because it reminds us that our God is sovereign. That our God is sovereign. What they meant for evil, didn't God use it for good? What did Fred Hammond say? No weapon formed against me shall prosper. What? It won't work. Get a little gospel music in your life. And sometimes hearing that God is sovereign doesn't always help us in the present struggle. Am I, isn't that true? You know, God's, you know, you're pouring your heart out to somebody and they're like, God's sovereign. Oh, thanks. Still got to deal with these bills, brother. 
doesn't always help you in the present, but you know what it should do? It should give you perspective for the future. Because if God is on my side, if God is for me, when the winds of adversity hit, when the tough times come, when the nine to five isn't as joyful as you were really hoping for it to be, when life gets tough, as much as it might not help you to hear it, you, you need to remember it. God is for you. God is working for your good. In what's hard. And I know and believe, because when I was at home sitting and thinking about this, the Lord gave me this strong sense to say that somebody here today needs to hear that because you are this close to, to drifting towards that shore of belief that God is not for you. And when you get to that place, when you allow the trial to bring you to a difficult, that spot where you are honestly trying, close to hugging the tree of unbelief and giving up on your, that is, a, that is a tough place to be. But you need this reminder that is right here, that the word of God is helping you now. What they meant for evil, God used it for good. And he will do the same thing in your life. And you need to hold on to that because it's a hard life. But God is with you in it. And so when the unexpected comes, doesn't unexpected things come? All the time. But even though there's unexpected things, God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he is at your side. And you need that word. And maybe you're like, ah, I don't know if I need it right now. You might need it in an hour. You might need it on Tuesday. Our God is sovereign. And so let's not throw it around as some just trite kind of thing. There it is. But let's, let's say it to one another. Let's believe it with the weight that it actually has. Sovereign over you all the time. What? Even in the valley, you are faithful, right? We sing it. Is it holding your heart? We sing it. Is, it. is it affecting the way that you live? We sing it. Are you surrendered under it when there's things going in a direction you were not expecting? On your side, for you, working, for your good, always. And honestly, Satan wants you to not believe it. Sometimes your flesh but it's true, and you need it, and I need it more than we know most days. God always, always working for our good. That's why at the end of Nehemiah, he helps us by reminding us that spiritual compromise is serious. Spiritual compromise is serious. If you, was it last week? I can't remember when I preached last. I think it was last week. But if you remember, I talked about the people, remember in chapter 10, making all kinds of commitments? Do you remember that? They made all, all these commitments. We love God. God is faithful. God is good. God is wise. 
God is with us. We believe it. God is patient. He is kind. And so we're going to commit to obey God and follow all the things that God tells us to do. Well, when you get to chapter 13, 4 to 29, it describes the ways the people broke all of their commitments. No lie. When you read Nehemiah, you're like, man, it starts hard. Then they're killing it in the middle. And then you get to the end, you're like, what? Just go home, you know, read it. Beginning to end. And you see, you're like, great start, middle, end. What? They compromised in multiple areas. Let me show you. They... they They compromised in the temple, the marketplace, and in their family. The temple, church, marketplace, work, family. Think about your family. They committed to take care of God's house, but they neglected it. Remember, they're like, we will not neglect the house of our God. Well, they allowed Tobiah to move into the temple. Do you remember who Tobiah is? He's the guy who was opposing them at the start. Sending letters to Nehemiah, hey, you stink, you don't really know what you're doing. Hiring people against him, and they let him move into the, he's living in the biggest room. And then they stop giving to the ministry of God. Chapter 12, 44, they're being generous. The ministers have food. The ministers have have funds so that they can actually take care of their needs and continue to minister, but they stop. Then they, they committed to rest from the marketplace, remember that? But then they started working on the Sabbath. They're like, we're gonna take a break. But they don't, they go right back to working. They committed only to marry believers, then they married people outside of the faith. And Nehemiah says it happened all when he left. Look at verse six of chapter 13. It says, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil. So Nehemiah, they're like, he's gone, guys. He leaves, and they go right back to these bad habits. And here's the thing, their compromise, because they compromised, the Levites and the singers had to stop ministering. Look at verse 10. It says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. They're like, we, we, don't, we, we don't have any support. We can't keep ministering, so we've got, we got to go find other work. They, ran, they flee away from it. Because they compromised, the people in the culture no longer saw them as distinct. Look at verse 16. It says, Tyrians also lived in the the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods, and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. So this distinction that they had, that they're like, we're going to take a break. We're going to stop because we believe that God is a provider. We believe that God is going to look after us. So we're going to step away from work. They're like, they just stopped doing that. Now they're doing what everybody else is doing. So there's no distinction now. They look just like everybody else. See what compromise can do? Because they're compromised, their kids couldn't speak Hebrew. Verse 23 says, In those days I saw that the, the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Amnon, uh, Amnon and Moab and half their children spoke the language 
of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And you're like, why is that important? Well, if you can't speak Hebrew, you can't understand the Bible at the time. If you can't understand scripture, you can't really know God, can you? You can't really grow in the faith, can you? You can't really carry on this tradition that started in your family of being people of faith. What I'm trying to show you is that you are not, and we are not islands. And when we compromise, it doesn't just affect us. It affects the people around you and the people who love you. And what I, so I started with, spiritual compromise is serious. And honestly, I'm hoping you're seeing the weight of how true that is. And you got to think about it. When we compromise, when we go into these spots, doesn't it, can it cause people to flee from the ministry? We see the ministers running from the work, but isn't there some compromises that, uh, that happen in church world? And we look around and there are people like, I'm done with that thing. I'm not going over there anymore. Because these people said they were, that there was a difference in them because of the God that they believed in. But when I got up in that thing, it looked like everything else that I was involved with. I may as well go to the club. I may as well go just go hang with my friends or whatever it is and do something different. Why be a part of that? Because there's nothing different in it. Flee. Can it cause unbelievers to doubt the gospel? If you don't look different, if I don't look different, why would anybody believe that what we say is true? If there's no distinction in us, if there is no light shining from us, if we are not actually salt in these spaces that God has us, why would anybody believe what we're preaching? And so these people were supposed to stop on the Sabbath to say, we believe in God. We are living by the standards of God. And in doing that, it was to cause people to want to come to God. But now they, the people look and they're like, you look like me. So yeah, talk about Jesus all you want. But if you're doing what I'm doing, why should I listen to anything that you have to say? And can it affect the, the faith of the, the next generation? And parents need to, uh, honestly, this is where it was for me in the sermon. That the things I'm doing now actually will affect my kids. And some of you are like, oh, I'm not a parent. Well, yeah, you're, you're, you're an auntie and an uncle because you're in the family. And all these babies are related to you. And so just think of the things that you're doing, that it'll actually touch the next generation that's coming. And so these people are like, I'm gonna do what I want right now in this generation, but I'm not considering how it might affect the next generation. Yeah, my kid can't speak the language. Oh, that's no big deal. Oh, well, let me think about it a little bit. Oh, they cannot even understand the scriptures that I'm called by God in Deuteronomy chapter six to tell them about. And so if they can't understand it, why are they going to buy and believe in anything of it? And that's how we can be as human beings. We get so caught up in thinking about ourselves. And so what you got to realize is when we spiritually compromise, we are not loving our neighbor. 
Our hearts and our minds are focused on ourselves and we're not considering how the thing that I'm doing right now that God can see, even if nobody else can see, we're not considering how this thing is going to affect somebody else and it's selfish and it's ungodly. We are called to love God, to love our neighbors. And when we choose to compromise and just think about your life, I don't know what's going on in your life, but I love you enough to tell you, review it, examine it, and consider, what am I doing right now that honestly, it shows I'm only loving myself, that I'm not loving the Lord, that I'm not loving my neighbor. And if you see something, I'm not saying there is something. You got to understand that, right? Everyone's not always failing. But if you see something, then you stop and you, you begin immediately asking for the spirit of God who resides in your heart to give you the power, the strength, the ability, the resolve, the commitment to stop. To stop but it's because it's going to affect more than just you. It's going to affect more than just you. For a moment, do not just think about yourself. Love someone else, your God and the people who love you and whose, whose lives touch yours. The compromise was serious. That's why Nehemiah confronted them. He spoke the truth. Nehemiah spoke the truth to them. He says in verse 7, he, he, he told them that what they were doing was evil. Simple way to see compromise. Evil. It's an act of evil. He spoke the truth. And then he warned them. Look at verse 18. He says, Did not our fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. He warned them. He's like, didn't it go real bad for people who persisted in this? Verse 26 says, did not King Solomon, Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women, because he married outside the faith, among many nations, There was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. Why? Didn't Wilson talk about this? Why is this man who ever lived? Fell off the chariot, though. Compromise is what got him there. It ends poorly for the people who persist in it. Nehemiah warned them, and then Nehemiah made real changes. (laughs) oh yeah here it comes verse 11 says so I confronted the officials and said why is the house of God forsaken and I gathered together and uh, set them in their in their stations then all Judah brought the tithe of grain wine and oil into the storehouses and I appointed and I appointed uh, as treasurer over the the storehouse Shalomah the priest Zadok the scribe and Pedadiah of the Levites and their assistants, Hanan, the son of Zakar, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. And I, and, I, 
and their duty was to distribute to the brothers. So he made the changes, get this thing organized, get the, get, the, get the Levites the resources they need so they can get back to ministering. Verse 19, he says, as soon as I, it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the door should, not, should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. He's like, we're gonna stop all this working on the Sabbath thing. Nobody's, nobody's coming in here, and you know, I'm not going to get into it, but he actually was guarding. People tried to come. He's like, if you come in here, mm, I don't know. It's not going to go too well. Then look at verse 7. It says, and I came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that the Elish, Eliashib the, had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. <laughs> like my grandma. I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chambers. What did I tell you? There's some furniture moving around in Jerusalem. Because he was, I'm, and this is righteous anger, by the way. Descriptive, not always prescriptive. But he's like, I, I, I threw everything out. What it, what the series title was Making Wrong Things Right. Isn't this what Nehemiah is doing? All this wrong, I'm going to make right. Isn't that what Jesus did? Chapter 21 of John 13 says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Watch how history repeats itself. And I went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, I found that those were, who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. See, Jesus is not afraid to do what is necessary. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and, uh, money changers and overturned their tables. Jesus, why are you so mad? Because Jesus is aware of what compromise, the danger and the damage it can actually cause in the lives of people, again, who persist in it. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. All of us, all of us, here's where it comes really home. All of us can compromise in the faith. You, me, today, tomorrow, all of us can compromise in the faith. And here's the thing, that's why yesterday's victories should not breed complacency today. Because it's not how you start, it's how you finish. They started well. They were progressing well. And then they fell apart. And as I was, again, sometimes I like to share with you what was going on with me as I was preparing. The only thing that came to my mind when I was reading this part and figuring out how I was going to teach it to you was this can be me. That none of us are at a spot where we cannot end up in this level of compromise. And then a song came to my head. <laughs> no, Shehan, come on. Come on, Shehan. Come help me, brother. No, seriously, he needs to help me. Every, where's the, yeah, everybody on the team. Come on. The song was, Lord, I need you. 
And it's a song that uh, somebody really close in our family used to, used to sing to Zion all the time when he was younger. And he'd just be like, you know, Auntie Arla, sing need you? Sing need you? Auntie Arla, sing need you? Sing need you? Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you to do the things that you want me to do, to do the things that you've instructed me from scriptures past, to do those things now for my good and for your glory. Lord, I need you. Let's stand and pray and sing. God, we pray that we would never get away from this spot where we say, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you to keep us from compromise, to keep us from giving up in the faith, to keep us from this place of not believing that you're working for our good always. Lord, I need you every hour. I need you. For more resources or information about Hope Church, visit hopetorontonorth.com.